If you had a sense that your time on earth was coming to an end, I wonder how that would impact the way you speak with other people and what you would share. Moses is a very unique period of his life because he has a sense that the time for his earthly journey is coming to an end. He's come to the end of his life in a series of years of wandering that have reached their climax. And for Moses, this means a parting of ways. The Israelites are going to go on. They're going to go on without him. And the many years of wilderness wandering have been completed. A generation that had perished over a period of 40 years. And the Israelites are going to enter the promised land. And they're poised for this. And it will not be Moses' leadership that they do this under. It will be Joshua. Joshua will be the successor to Moses. Moses' journey comes to an end in the book of Deuteronomy. The very last chapter of this book is his death. And the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons from Moses that take place in his last year with them. Moses would be approximately 120 years old. That at the very end of the book, that age is going to be clarified from Deuteronomy 34 and other texts that help us see that age. Leading up to that final uh, moments of Moses' life are these sermons. And the last chapter of the book, his death. In Exodus, we were introduced to Moses. He was born in Exodus chapter 2. Over the years of our study of these books in the Torah or the Pentateuch, these five books of Moses... Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, we've seen dominating, uh, dominated by the figure of Moses. His leadership, his journeying, his many words and revelations, and mediatorship for the people of Israel. And it's in the book of Deuteronomy where we reach the last stage of Moses' earthly journey. The chapters leading up to Moses' death here in Deuteronomy consist of his words to the people to remind them of things, exhort them, warn them, plead with them. The book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons. You can think of it as the speeches and sermons of Moses, his, his last hurrah with these people where they are poised to cross the Jordan River. The audience is not exactly what it looked like when he left Egypt. They are still the Israelites, but we've got to remember that in our study through the book of Numbers, we saw in the wilderness years the death and resurrection of Israel. That's one of the ways we've tried to think about what happened over those 40 years. There was a death of an older generation and a rising of a new generation. Moses' audience in Deuteronomy is the new generation. They've grown up over the course of many years. They've had children of their own. And now they will be the generation to take the promised land and inherit it. The first few chapters of this book are a review of Israel's history. And what's helpful about this review is this generation who's the audience of the book. Many of them were not alive when these events were taking place so many years earlier. A review of Israel's recent history is going to be helpful for these people because some of them weren't even born when Israel left Egypt. They were born and grew up in the wilderness. And they have history that they have been told and now Moses will relay to them. These chapters will repeat and apply some commandments and laws for the Israelites to obey. Why does the generation need to remember what happened earlier? Philosopher George Santayana is right when he says those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. You've probably heard that summarized and paraphrased in different ways, such as those who don't know their history are doomed to repeat it. People who who say that kind of thing are relying on Santayana's earlier words 
Those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Now, both the original quote and the paraphrases of it are wise because the past has, the past has lessons to teach us. That's what the past contains. So we, we think about the past not to live there. We think about the past in order to live well now. We think about the past and we try to remember what's taken place and the warnings therein and the goodness of God in the past so that we will be rightly walking into the future. Things have happened in the history of individuals and countries and movements around the world that contain errors. And when we review what happens before us, we are humbled by historical perspective and we realize they were capable of doing those kinds of things. So let us humbly walk forward, remembering the past so that the tragedy of human pride does not become our undoing as well. The Israelites are going to go soon into a land of promise flowing with milk and honey, but this land is occupied. It's occupied by Canaanites who are not going to just give the Israelites the land. They're going to engage in combat and they will seek to destroy the Israelites. They will resist Yahweh and they want to maintain their idolatrous places of worship. And yet here is the reality. The Lord has ordained the inheritance of the promised land for the Israelites. And the conquest of those Canaanites will be a judgment from God. The land of promise is defiled by idolatry and immorality. And all the neighboring peoples, try as they might, will not be able to resist the plan of God to judge the wicked and to keep His covenant to the people of Israel. The the book of Deuteronomy is a work that orients the minds and hearts of God's people. The Israelites need this kind of document because it both reviews history and exhorts them in the future. It involves both. They will live holy lives, they are said to uh, expect, when they get to that promised land. They're to be a holy people set apart. That's what they're to look toward. That they will live for the glory of God among the nations. Why is this book called Deuteronomy? It is a long name, and it is a word that means second law. Second law. And that idea is there was earlier revelation that Exodus and Numbers, well, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, all three of those books, give for the Israelites. Deuteronomy is called second law because here's a new generation that's getting some reminders. But there's an, it's easy to misunderstand what second law means. This is not new revelation. It's a giving of the law in what can seem like a renewal kind of way. The Israelites are not getting a new covenant. They're not getting new law. They're getting a renewal document. A sermons, a series of sermons, really. They're going to call them to remember and learn and be exhorted into the future by what God has already revealed. And because they are not the Exodus generation, it's like a second kind of law to them with the name of the book. You should know that the book of Deuteronomy had a tremendous impact on the rest of the Old Testament. In the historical books that follow from Joshua and Judges, Samuel and Kings, prophets like Isaiah, all the way through the minor prophets, they rely a lot on the teachings and theology of Deuteronomy. Of the New Testament quotations of Old Testament books, Deuteronomy is the second most quoted book in the whole New Testament. The only book quoted more in the New Testament than Deuteronomy is the book of Psalms. Deuteronomy is the book Jesus quotes from the most in his teachings. Deuteronomy is a massively important book. My mentor at Southern Seminary named Jim Hamilton has said, in his judgment, the two most important Old Testament books to understand are Deuteronomy and Isaiah. 
And that should at least suggest, even if not all interpreters and theologians would agree with that, that at least it is in the top of a list of books that is not extraneous or in some way unengaged by the rest of the Old Testament. It has been called by one scholar the Romans of the Old Testament. And this is, these are just phrases and quotes to try to set in our minds here a kind of importance by people who have spent decades trying to mine the riches of and comment with clarity and insight on the book that one, one scholar called the Gospel According to Moses. And I love these phrases because it helps to highlight the importance of the journey we are on as we begin tonight. The Old Testament is filled with theology, and one writer says that Deuteronomy is the most systematic presentation of Old Testament theology in the Old Testament. It teaches about promises and covenants, idolatry of the nations and the supremacy of Yahweh, ways of righteousness and wickedness. It is filled with wisdom and prophecy and revelation and poetry. The book of Deuteronomy is rich, and it is a series of sermons from the beloved leader of the Israelites, Moses. I want to say something about the form of the book. On the right side of the board, I have what are called the five elements of the suzerain vassal treaties, and the form of the book has intrigued scholars over the years, and throughout church history, there were things that hadn't yet been discovered that you can compare certain Old Testament documents to. But over the last few hundred years, enough excavations and discoveries of different treaties and documents from the ancient world has revealed something fascinating about the unfolding of Deuteronomy. In the Old Testament era, in the ancient Near East, when a conquering people would subdue a land, they would seek to protect and, uh, and vouch for the future of that people in a covenant or a treaty that they would form. The suzerain is a reference to the superior or defeating or the uh, conquering army. And the vassal are those who are at the bidding or the mercy of those who are going to make that treaty. And if you wanted your um, inferior nation to continue on in existence, it is in your best interest to form a treaty and uh, establish some, some ground rules of what life in the new regime is going to look like. Because you have this superior power or suzerain over you. And among the Hittite discoveries from uh, archaeologists and ancient Near Eastern scholars, they have seen that in the era of the 1400s, there are treaties in the ancient world that look like Deuteronomy. And the reason that matters time-wise is because in 1446, the Israelites left Egypt. And 40 years later, encompassing this whole wilderness wandering, in approximately 1406 BC, the conquest of the, of the Promised Land is going to take place. And Deuteronomy ends up looking like a document possessing all the elements of an ancient treaty between a greater power and the lesser one. Now, what's interesting about this, then, is that the preamble that you would see in a suzerain vassal treaty sets locations and times and people who are involved. And the opening of Deuteronomy reads that way for the Israelites. Because for the Israelites, who's the greater power with whom they're in covenant? Well, it's Yahweh. This isn't like some horizontal nation that's come and conquered them. Yahweh is the greater power. And he's in covenant with them. They're like the vassal side of the treaty. And then you have a historical prologue where treaties in the ancient world would review what their relationship has been in the past. 
And starting in Deuteronomy 1, that's also what you have. And over a few chapters, the history of the relationship between the sovereign Yahweh and the people of Israel is reviewed. And then stipulations and laws. What are the expectations in the relationship? Not only were the treaties of the ancient world in this era consisting of those kinds of things, so does Deuteronomy consist of these things. After reviewing their previous relationship, a whole host of laws and applications of the commandments exist to show what the relationship must consist of with vassal or the uh, Israelites who've been redeemed and the one they're in covenant with. And then near the end of Deuteronomy, just like in ancient treaties, there's a series of blessings if the conditions are met and a series of judgments or curses if the treaty or covenant law is rejected. You see this especially in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. And then near the very end of these treaties in the ancient world, you would have people who are bearing witness, the gods of the nations and other parties that would bear witness to what's happening. And near the end of Deuteronomy, sections of those chapters regarding Moses, heaven and earth, and the mountains and valleys, elements of creation that are even called upon to bear witness to what's going on. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because Deuteronomy is not a new book. It's an old book. And Deuteronomy is written during the 1400s as a series of sermons from Moses. And it turns out that it's a covenant document formed like treaties between a greater power and a covenanted people. And that in the land of the Israelites means Yahweh and the Israelites are in a covenant together and Deuteronomy's outline feels like that kind of treaty form from the ancient world. Genesis doesn't look that way. Exodus doesn't look that way. Leviticus doesn't work that way. Numbers doesn't look this way. Deuteronomy has an interesting form. And it's formed like a series of sermons with a treaty outline between God and his people. And therefore, we see tonight the opening or these preamble words we might call it in verses 1 to 4. This is the place and timing of Moses' sermons. It tells us in verse 1, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. Now, I've got a map up here. I think this one might be a little bit clearer. To be beyond the Jordan is to be on the eastern side. To be on the eastern side means that these Israelites are on the Transjordan area. They are beyond the Jordan, ready to cross over the Jordan. But for now, they are in this area of Moab. You see this underlined with the capital letters here, Moab. And they are in this Moab area, ready to cross over the Jordan River. So the Sea of Galilee and the Jordan River that connects it to uh, the Dead Sea. The Israelites are beyond the Jordan in this wilderness. And there's a series of words, the Arabah opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. These are all terms that refer to areas in the Moabite region. It would be more relevant to them than it is to us. Some of these things aren't even discernible by archaeologists on Bible maps to even pinpoint. But in the ancient world, these would have been more known uh, than it would be for us. So the book of Deuteronomy, we're just reminded when we read verse 1, this was not initially written to us, was it? These places meant something far more to them than they stand out in our minds. We're then told in verse 2, that it is 11 days journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. Now that's a long way of saying from Mount Sinai, which is down here, to Kadesh Barnea, 
And then you've got uh, some of the Edom area, which has uh, Seir or Mount Seir. That's an Edomite territory. That from here to this area is an 11-day journey. Now, the word Horeb in verse 2 is what Deuteronomy uses for what we call Sinai. When we read the journey from Horeb, we need all of our minds to think Sinai. Deuteronomy only mentions Sinai one time. It prefers the, the name Horeb. But when we think, uh, see the name Horeb, we need to think that mountain, Ten Commandments, Golden Calf, uh, tabernacle built at the base, Israel there for 11 months, and then traveling on. Mount Horeb is Sinai. And we're told that it would take 11 days to get to Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea is this area here, south of this promised land. And back to this map, you can see Kadesh Barnea right below the land of Canaan. Kadesh Barnea is Numbers 13 and 14. This area from which spies were sent, 12 spies, to go leave Kadesh Barnea and explore this land throughout. And the majority came back with a bad report. The Israelites had two of those spies, Caleb and Joshua, who were ready to go in and defeat the Canaanites, and inherit the land. So here is the irony that I think verse 2 and 3 set up for us. From Mount Sinai, which I know here is easier to be seen, from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, you've got an 11-day journey. And then you ought to be poised right there to inherit the land. 11 days. And what I love about this in our modern-day readers, people have actually tried this. There have been people who've gone to the Sinai wilderness And they've seen if it could take 11 days to get to the area of Kadesh Barnea. And it really can. Like they've actually done the experiments to do this. This is not just what verse 2 estimates. Someone went through the trouble to try this out in real life. Okay. But then you read in verse 3. In the 40th year. What happened? With what should have just taken less than two weeks. To get from Sinai into the promised land, ready to conquest it. We as readers should be looking at verses 2 and 3 and thinking, what happened that a journey is summarized to take less than two weeks to get from Sinai into the promised land? And then we read, in the 40th year. What in the world? Then we're told in the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that God had given him and the commandment to them. And then he's going to uh, relay um, these words after this other particular defeat. We're going to get highlighted in verse 4, this prior victory over Sihon and, and Og. But this 40th year reminds us of something. And it reminds us that Deuteronomy comes after the book of Numbers where 40 years of Israelite judgment had unfolded because they rejected the Lord's will for them in the land and in, uh, or outside the land and refused to enter it out of fear and unbelief. The Lord called them a wicked and unbelieving generation and that their bodies would perish in the wilderness. So in what should have taken less than two weeks to get from Mount Sinai to the promised land, I mean, it's just a narrative that shows you sin makes everything more difficult. I mean, look at what's happened to them narratively. A journey of the Israelites now 40 years after their exodus. It should have never taken this long. 
They should have been ready, poised from the promises of God onward to take the land out of obedience to God. But they rebelled against the Lord and rebellion doesn't improve the situation. It's made everything more complicated. It drug out everything longer than it needed to be. It made everything harder for everyone else than it needed to have happened. And in verse 4, there had been a taste of victory in that 40th year already. That wilderness generation had been succeeded gradually by this new generation growing up in the land. And in Numbers 21, an earlier defeat had taken place where Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, that's this, um, Heshbon, this area here. And this is still, in other words, Moabite territory. You've got Heshbon, Amorites. They're all an Amorite. The Amorites were likely a, a more nomadic kind of group. They weren't limited just to one location. There were Amorites all over the place. So you have the king of Heshbon here named Sihon. And then the king of Bashan named Og. And then you have Ashtaroth and Edrei that are mentioned, likely capital locations. We're, we're told here when Moses spoke to them in the 40th year, this was after the wilderness wandering. It's the 40th after all. This is after Miriam, Moses' sister, died. That happened in Numbers 20. It's after Moses' brother Aaron died. That happened in Numbers 20 as well and in the 40th year. And it's after this defeat where God gave a taste, if you will, of the conquest to come. There were these east of the Jordan River areas where the king of, Sih- uh, the, king of the Amorites named Sihon had been defeated. He had lived in Heshbon and then Og one of the best-named kings in all the Old Testament, Og, the king of, the, of Basham, who lived in Ashtaroth and Edrei, God gave victory to them. All of that's already happened. And the book of Numbers tells those stories. So we're told in verses 3 and 4, when Moses begins the book of Deuteronomy speeches, it's after all of that has happened. So in verse 5, beyond the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to explain this law. This law is pointing forward. Everything we will read throughout the laws of Deuteronomy. He is now going to undertake the journey of explaining this law while he is in the land of Moab. This land, the land in which he will die and then from which the Israelites will leave and cross the Jordan River. I hope these Bible maps are helpful to some degree. I know that if people are listening to this in the audio, they'll have to go to their own Bible maps. But looking at some of these things on the screen is helpful just for my own clarity. And um, if you're geographically challenged in any degree with Bible lands like I am, you may need this too. So um, this is helpful to me. I know I keep referring back and flipping slides, but hopefully that's that's, uh, more help than harm. All right, verse 6. Here's what Moses says. The Lord our God said to us at Horeb. Horeb being which mountain? This is Mount Sinai, right? So while we were at Sinai, here's what God said to us. You've stayed long enough at this mountain. I mean, they weren't there to stay forever. They were only to stay at Mount Sinai for a brief period. In 1446, the exodus from Egypt took place and they arrived at Sinai that same year. And they stayed in Mount Sinai for 11 months. From Exodus 19... To Numbers chapter 10. That's not a long time. That it's a lot of Bible. It's over 50 Bible chapters. Very small amount of time unfolds while they're at Sinai. 11 months. But after staying there for just less than a year, the Lord says to them, you stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey. Now some of those listening to Moses reiterate this history, they weren't even at Sinai. They had not even been born. 
Moses is saying to them, God said to us, there's a collective identity. Yes, they're a new generation. Yes, many of them would have uh, not been, well, they wouldn't have been born and even growing up until the wilderness area. But it's like Moses is saying, God said to you, even if he said it first to your ancestors. Because collectively, you're the people of Israel. So this is what God said to you, even if you didn't initially hear it. Turn and take your journey in verse 7 and go to the hill country of the Amorites, their neighbors in the Arabah, the hill country in the lowland, the Negev by the seacoast, and the land of the Canaanites in Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. What is verse 7 talking about? The gist of it is this. Go to this land and conquer it. The Euphrates, you get, you're going to have to go farther north than that. Um, and the map doesn't even go um, as far as it needs to go. But he's talking about regions and areas of the land that are summarizing this whole Canaanite land that they're heading toward. So verse 7 is a long way of saying, go conquer Canaan. When he's talking about hill country of the Amorites, the neighbors in the Arabah, hill country in the lowland, the Negev, the seacoast, he's talking about this area that the book of Joshua will start to narrate the defeat and conquest of. Those are boundary markers in verse 7. It's giving you boundary markers. It's like if you were trying to go somewhere and you didn't have your, your maps on your phone. And you said, what do I need to look for? And someone says, okay, well, it's going to be around this and you're going to see this. And along the way, you'll pass this. These are mile markers that are a long way of saying the land I promised to your forefathers. In verse 8, see, I've set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. We're being reminded here of things from Genesis. Not only are, are there verses in Deuteronomy 1 that remind us of numbers, you've got to go back to the first book of the Torah when you hear Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. When you hear these names and promises given to them, like in Genesis 12, 7, the Lord said to Abraham, to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. Talking about this land that Abraham had traveled through in Genesis 12. We're told in Genesis 17, 8, God says to Abraham, I'm going to give to you and your offspring the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. So we know he said it to Abraham. He also says it to Isaac. In Genesis 26, God promises Isaac that the promised land would be his and his offspring's. In Genesis 35, he says to Jacob, the land I gave to Abraham and to Isaac I'll give to you. When Deuteronomy 1 tells us in verse 8 that the Lord swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, we've got examples from Genesis of every single case of those generations. Actual promises said by God to Abraham, to the rest of the patriarchs, that the offspring of these patriarchs will have the land. When this generation is on the eastern side of the Jordan River in the land of Moab, they are the generation to receive in full the promised land that God swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would be theirs and their offsprings. Now in verses 9 through 12, we see moving from the place and timing of the words in verses 1 to 4, the call to leave Sinai and possess Canaan in verses 5 to 8, Moses continues to remember some history with them. And he says, so at that time... In verse 9, I said to you, I'm not able to bear you by myself. We don't quite know yet what Moses means. He's going to unpack a bit more of what he means. Are they just too numerous? Are they just too 
testy and difficult for him? Well, it's actually yes to both. No, not either or. It turns out that both of these things explain why Moses uses the language of I'm not able to bear you by myself. Because in this area of their travels, Moses had appointed helps through their own uh, putting forward of tribal heads that they were given and delegated authority to aid Moses in caring for the issues of the Israelites. So he says, I'm not able to bear you by myself. That's what I told you, you'll recall. And in verse 10, what I said was that the Lord your God's multiplied you. And behold, you're today as numerous as the stars of heaven. That's more Genesis stuff. The Lord has multiplied you. God said he would. He even said to Abraham in Genesis 15, you look at the stars, Abraham, and you won't be able to count them. And so shall your offspring be. In Genesis 22, he told Abraham, your descendants are going to be like the sand of the seashore. What seems to be an uncountable offspring, based on the promises of God, God says, or Moses says to them in verse 10, the Lord has multiplied you, and you are so many. You are so numerous, like stars from heaven. In verse 11, may the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are, and bless you as he's promised you. I think this is Moses' way of saying it. By the way, it's not like I wouldn't want God to keep that promise. You know, the God, God said, as numerous as the stars of heaven, and Moses is like, yeah, I wish that wouldn't happen. He says, by the way, I think it's great that the Lord has multiplied you. Don't hear what I'm not saying in verse 10. Uh, the Lord's multiplied you in verse 11. May he make you a thousand times as many. But in verse 12, he's saying, you'll remember that I've said to you, how can I bear by myself the weight and the burden of you and your strife? Oh, we know that in the Exodus wilderness wanderings in numbers as well, there were disputes and arguments. There were complaints and murmuring. There were people who were ready to find another leader and the difficulties of their civil disputes. There is, there is simply a surpassing situation from what Moses himself could deal with. We see Moses reminding them in verses 13 to 18, the strategy of appointing leaders to help. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, Moses says in verse 13, here's what I told you. You're going to choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men. Earlier in Exodus 18, it looks like the idea is from Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, who says, Moses, you you need some help. So, So why don't you try this? And that's not because Deuteronomy 1 is telling a different story from Exodus chapter 18. I think we're given all the angles now to understand this from. When Moses tells the tribes what to do, Jethro's wisdom and insight had been part of what led up to that decision. We know that from not Deuteronomy 1, but from Exodus 18. And so Moses says, here's what happened. I said, choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I'll appoint them as your heads. And this is wisdom language. The word wise is explicit, but that's certainly what understanding and experienced means as well. It means those who have demonstrated through the passing and testing of time and trial that they fear the Lord, know his word, and love to lead in a way that has been publicly acknowledged and now will be delegated with authority. In verse 13, they're to be wise, understanding, and experienced men. And Moses says, you choose them. Which means that these people are to have a kind of reputation that would lead them to stand apart and be set apart for this very crucial work in the land. Moses says, and I will appoint them as your heads. 
These people that are to be appointed should be shaped by the words of God and living with reverence to God, cultivating a reputation of godliness such that they are publicly acknowledged and respected. In verse 14, Moses says, you know what you said to me when I suggested this to you? You said, that's a great idea, Moses. That's a paraphrase. In verse 14, it sounds like this. The thing you've spoken is good for us to do. So they were for it. Moses didn't have to spend months trying to convince them. They, they thought, okay, so we're going to examine our various tribes and we're going to put forward people that you will also appoint. So you said to me, the thing you've spoken for us is, is good. So in verse 15, I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you. Commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. Moses is authorizing people with authority and leadership to handle disputes and divisions among the Israelites. And there are different groups, some larger and some smaller, but nevertheless, people who are leading over them. They're called here commanders, commanders. Moses is the leader of the Israelites under Yahweh's commands for sure. And yet these commanders are enforcers to lead and to handle disputes in matters with delegated legal authority. We even have the word officers here. These officials are, it's a different term from commanders. These may be officers who help the commanders in some kind of supplementary way. As one writer suggested, maybe these are subordinate civil officers with secretarial skills and assistant skills in order to help those in the commander roles. But what we have clearly is that heads or leaders are over many of these groups, broken down into thousands, hundreds, and fifties, and some over tens. Think about this. There's something wonderfully New Testament even about this process, isn't it? Where there is a congregational public affirmation and reception of leaders who shepherd and care for the various needs and conflicts among the people. As God has redeemed them and is bringing them by grace to their land of promise. It's this kind of important background that no doubt plays into the New Testament leadership and government of the churches of Jesus Christ. Even though the church of Christ is not a nation state. They are churches that under the authority of God are people to be led and cared for, shepherded and encouraged, built up in every way. These people are addressed in verse 16 who've been set apart. I charged your judges at that time. Don't pass quickly over that word. He just called them judges. Now, there's easily something that might come to mind. Well, we've got a whole book called Judges. The book of Judges, it's after Joshua. And yes, I still think it's the same kind of thing. There could be a military role already that these judges may play in the book of Deuteronomy. That's certainly the main idea of judges in the book that goes by its name. But they had even a domestic and legal responsibility, less paramount in judges, maybe more paramount here in Deuteronomy. These commanders or these heads had a role of judging. Because Moses is one man. The Israelites are a very numerous people. He says, it's already like the stars of heaven. You're so numerous. And he says, by the way, you know, it's not that I'm complaining. I hope God makes that ten times as many, but I'm going to need some help. So in verse 16, he says, here's what I charge your judges. Hear the cases between your brothers and judge righteously. So it turns out that sinners living with other sinners are going to develop problems. 
It turns out there's expected conflict. He says, I just don't want this to be a surprise to you. And you say, the people of God have been redeemed from Egypt. We're heading toward a land of promise. Surely it's just going to be rosy all the way. Not if you've read the rest of Exodus and the book of Numbers. We know it's not the case. There are, in fact, issues that arise. And these cases are going to be between brothers, fellow Israelites, fellow professing worshipers of Yahweh. So he says, here's what I need your appointed heads to do. I need them to be able to mediate. I need them to be able to hear cases. And I need them to be able to make judgments. Judge righteously between man and his brother or the alien who is with him. This is about the sojourner, the non-Israelite. Ah, this is intriguing because it says that the Israelites should envision situations where there's an issue not just between Israelite and Israelite, but between someone who's an Israelite and someone who's not. This alien is a reference to what some translations have as sojourner, someone who's not a citizen of Israel, but is coming through and in some ways wrapped up in a dispute. He says, here's what's required of you, leaders, righteous judgment. Whether it's Israelite or non-Israelite, you represent the Lord. And in representing the Lord, you are to make righteous judgments. In verse 17, he's explaining more about what this would mean. You shall not be partial. Their tendency, their tendency might be to think, but this non-Israelite situation, he's not a citizen of Israel, but here's this person who is an Israelite, so I want to be partial to this person and give judgment in their favor. He says, you shall not be partial in judgment. Or maybe somebody might think, well, okay, it's between two Israelites, but one of them I just like better. Or one of them I just have known longer. Or one of them is really politically or socially connected. And so if I put judgment in their favor, I can see how that will really work out for me in a few years down the road. He's saying, you can't think about justice this way. You shall not be partial. You shall hear the small and the great alike. Those categories of small and great are worldly categories. But why does he bring them up? Because people will be tempted to view others in categories of small or great and might be tempted to be partial accordingly. And he says, you're going to hear the small and the great cases alike. Those who have much and who have little. Those who have connections and those who don't. Those who are Israelites and those who aren't. Those who are old and those who are young. Whatever categories might tempt you to be partial, you are not to factor those things in. You shall not be intimidated by anyone. And that's because reputation and threats and political savviness and social credibility, there are all sorts of things that might make someone fear man and that influence the judgment they make. And he says that's not what justice is. Biblical justice for your society is not to factor in worldly categories that influence your judgment, but instead not being partial. And he even says here, you shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. This is to say, fear not man, fear the Lord. You, you are to fear the Lord because when you act on behalf of uh, your fellow Israelites in making a judgment, you ultimately represent the God who is just and who is righteous and holy. 
So there's an accountability there, a gravity to that. The judgment is God's. Moses also envisions that it's possible the, the nature of a case could be so difficult that even the commanders of the thousands, the hundreds, the fifties, and the tens, and the officers may need to say, we, we need Moses involved. So if the case is too hard for you, you shall bring it to me and I will hear it. But it's certainly the case Moses cannot deal with all of the cases, given what else he is doing as a leader among the people. The judges are to not be unfair with weights and measures, as we can borrow language from Proverbs. So in verse 18, he says, And I commanded you at that time all the things you should do. And what we've noticed in these first 18 verses is Moses and the Israelites are spending their last uh, part of their 40th year on the eastern side of the Jordan, in the land of Moab. And during this time, Moses is going to preach a series of sermons to the Israelites And it's going to take the form of a kind of treaty between a greater power and a lesser people. And that treaty in the ancient world was like, it's called a suzerain vassal treaty, fancy name for saying, you know, in this case, what ends up being God and Israel in covenant together. And that Moses is going to take a few chapters at first to review the relationship. And those who do not know their history are doomed to repeat it. These people in a new generation should not think to themselves, oh, I don't care what's happened before this. You know, Sinai, that was so many decades ago. You know, that's so removed from us. Let's just go into the land, Moses. Moses says, actually, we need to think about where we've come from. We need to think about what's gone on before us. We need to think about what God has said. We need to think about what the covenant is like. Because I need you to go into the land and live holy before him. And not like those who sin in the wilderness. So the incentive here, as one writer put it, is to motivate the Israelites through the review of their history. Motivate them to go forward and conquer the land. That helping our perseverance and and striving and pursuit of the Lord involves remembrance, recollection of the prior works and words of God. The discipline of remembrance. Moses will say to the Israelites in the book of Deuteronomy, when you go into the land, don't forget the Lord. He needs them to remember so that they don't forget. That is just so explicit across the text. It's sobering as well as we realize how vulnerable we are and how easy it might be to not consider the weight of things that have gone before us that we should factor in so that we can have the humility of historical perspective and say, okay, Knowing what's happened prior can help me walk more wisely now. As one commentator said, Moses' aim then is to motivate them to go forward and conquer the land and to help them be faithful to God amidst all the challenges to such faithfulness that they'll face. Oh, they will not have Moses forever. And Joshua soon will die. And the story of Israel will take such a turn that in the book of Judges it says, and there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And you read the narratives of where things go when they forget the Lord, when they do not think about their history, when the historical perspective doesn't keep them humble before the words of God, all manner of rebellious outbreak happens. The same commentator says, So Moses warns them of the challenges and he encourages them to a life of holiness and tells them of the consequences of living and of failing to live such a life. They need this kind of review. It only is in the first opening chapters before he then begins to expand upon and apply the laws for what covenant life will look like. 
But it's so that when they go forward, they will be a people who remember collectively. I'm not just an individual Israelite. I'm part of a people. How relevant is this for our body of Christ? We're just individual disciples or Christians. We're part of a people in covenant with Christ together with a history of the people of God that has gone before us that should give us historical humility. And the review of these things and the exhortations that follow in that wake are helpful for us because we are aiming toward a new creation and inheritance where there are snares and victories needed along the way. So part of what keeps us humble and part of what orients our life is theology and historical review like what the book of Deuteronomy gives us. It's a powerful phrase, I think, as one scholar noted, that Deuteronomy is like the Romans of the Old Testament. So if we approach the the book of Deuteronomy and we prepare with opened ears and hearts to receive for us the grandeur of God's might and faithfulness and character that's unfolded here and the review of his gracious, merciful deeds on behalf of the Israelites, we will find ourselves rightly exhorted. And when you go forward, don't forget the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. Don't forget the Lord. Remember what God has done. Let's pray.